invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. I want to read the entire chapter and then focus on verse 20 with you. But I want to read all of chapter 3 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, and here we hear the word of God as follows. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to, to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. <coughs> Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have, a little, you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. 
To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I want to look with you for a moment at verse 20. Verse 20, I want to read it again. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May God add his blessing to our hearing, reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Bowmanville with me this morning. In the, opening, in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation, we learn that the apostle John was on the Isle of Patmos. And the details of his deportation is not made clear to us. However, we do know that his loyalty to Christ and his faithfulness to the gospel led to his exile. For we read he is on Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we read further that while he was there, John has shown a vision a vision of Christ himself, and he hears his divine voice instructing him, John, write, write what you see in a book and send it to the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Tiratira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, it is likely that there were more than just these seven churches in the region. However, the Lord gives us these congregations as, an ex as examples with a specific purpose. The particular situations and spiritual diseases of these seven congregations accurately reflected conditions that can plague all churches at all times. In other words, in other words, the seven epistles of John to the churches of Asia Minor describe conditions which are unique not to any particular time in history, no rather we read of spiritual imperfections which occur again and again throughout all of church history. And so consequently, these letters are also intended for our own instruction here in Salem. It is well for us to note that all, to all seven churches, <clears throat> the same glorious gospel of God's grace in Christ had been presented. Each had been taught the riches of God's grace, and each had at least at one time eagerly embraced the gospel message in faith. However, obviously not all had applied and worked out that faith in the same way. And consequently, we find very diverse and different situations in each of these congregations. We note that the warnings, the admonitions, and the condemnations expressed by Christ are significantly different to each church, to each situation. No two of these congregations were alike. We hear him say, we hear Jesus say that Ephesus had abandoned her first love. Smyrna was being persecuted. False doctrine was threatening the church at Pergamos. Tiratira had allowed a false prophetess to teach. And the church at Sardis is declared to be dead. And Philadelphia is shown to be weak in the faith. However, no condemnation pronounced on any one of these churches is as serious as the indictment thundered by Christ on the church of Laodicea. In relation to them, Jesus used the words lukewarm. He declares that his flock had become an offense and an abomination in his mouth. Their faith had become diminished, their love had cooled, and their hope had deteriorated. Lukewarm, lukewarm is the word that Jesus used. <clears throat> 
Think with me for a moment of the implications of such a profound judgment from our Lord. Lukewarm they were, according to Christ. So lukewarm in prayer, lukewarm in confession, lukewarm in their giving in the name of the Lord and for the glory of God, lukewarm in their regard to sin, indifferent or lukewarm concerning their consequent grieving of the Holy Spirit, lukewarm to the grace of God offered them in Christ, lukewarm and indifferent to the preaching of the word of God, in other, words, in other words, Christ, who searches all things, had examined the innermost recesses of their hearts, and he found them to be lukewarm in all of the expressions of their faith, and he declares that to be such an offense to him that he threatens to vomit them out of his mouth. And yet, and yet an extremely noteworthy and important for us to see is that this appalling condemnation by Christ is immediately followed by an expression of love and hope. We notice that even though this congregation had become an offense to God, yet he does not yet give them over to their own evil desires. In his great love for them, he continues to work towards their conversion and their welfare. To these lukewarm people with whom he is so disgusted that he threatens to spew them out of his mouth, we hear him address them with the words, As many as I love, I rebuke and chastise. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I administer God's word to you on this preparatory Sunday morning, using as my theme, Christ at the door of our hearts. We want to notice, first of all, his work there. We will learn of our required response. And finally, we want to hear of his promise of blessing upon our response. We have listened to the tragic situation of the Church of Laodicea as it was given us in the setting of our text. And yet, incredibly, we notice also that the congregation was totally oblivious to their own peril. For we read and we hear them say, we are rich, we've become richer, we have need of nothing. And such optimism on their part revealed not only their ungodly pride, but also it is a demonstration of their spiritual blindness and self-deception. Jesus Christ, however, shines his light on them and declares to them their true condition. You do not even know, says Christ, you don't even know that in fact you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, sin always has, uh, bears the same kind of fruit as evidenced by these Laodiceans. Oh, that lukewarmness puts us in a very precarious condition for you see unconfessed and unrepentant sin blinds our hearts and our minds making it impossible for us to even see the true condition of ourselves and at the same time it feeds our sinful pride causing us to feel comfortable comfortable in our complacency in verse 18 of our text our savior portrays himself as a heavenly merchant he, he, he says, he has wandered the streets of Laodicea, and in all sincerity, he has urgently appealed to the town folk to come to him and to buy from him what is needful for them. We hear him say, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire, that you might be rich, 
white garments that you may be clothed and that your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint, anoint your eyes with salve that they may be healed. Notice with me how tenderly Jesus speaks. I counsel you to buy from me gold, white garments and ointment for your eyes. In short, I counsel you to buy from me salvation. Salvation is golden for it makes one rich. Salvation is white robes for it covers our guilt and covers our nakedness and clothes us with righteousness. It is eye salve for when we possess salvation, we're no longer spiritually blind and our eyes are open to our great need of the Christ. And yet, and yet they heard him not. For we read in our text, they considered themselves to be rich, becoming even richer and in need of nothing. They were impervious to the imperishable goods that he had that he had offered them, and they neither heard nor discerned the urgency of their own great need. Nevertheless, Jesus was undaunted. Seeing that the flock heeded him not and desired not his wares, he still persists in his love for them. He has called out and petitioned them only to be ignored. And now, as it were, he approaches them even more directly and aggressively. He now goes to their door. And in the light of this metaphor, we have before us the proper context to examine what Christ does at the door also at the door of our heart. First of all, we read, he stands. I stand, I stand at the door. And so it's revealed to us that it is Christ himself. I stand at the door. Christ himself stands at the door. In verse 14 of our text, we read, I am the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. These words are significant in the context of this morning sermon. It must be noticed that it is Jesus himself. It's Christ himself, the amen and the faithful witness who has come calling. The situation has become reversed, has it not? We should be cognizant of our need for him. We should be found eagerly waiting at his door. And yet we read Jesus stands. He stands at our door. He stands. We do not read that he made himself comfortable and settled in and settled down perhaps on the on the front porch outside of our hearts. No, he stands. The door needs to be opened, or he will leave and he will go on. He stands at the door and he waits for us. He is indeed long suffering and patient, but we must respond while he is still there, while he can still be found. He stands and he waits, but the time will come when he will be no longer there. Oh, let no one entertain that false notion that time is plenty to seek the Lord. Seek him yet today while it is still the day of grace. And it is a fundamental import that we keep in mind here that Jesus is coming to the church of Laodicea. We need to understand that. We need to understand that for although it goes without saying that unbelievers are commanded to believe in him, but to faithfully interpret and explain our text of this morning, it's crucial that we remember that here in this text, Jesus is dealing specifically with those who have already confessed him as Savior. Jesus is speaking to the church and to the members of the church. He has come to examine their hearts 
He's come to examine the hearts of those who had confessed themselves to belong to him. And my dear people, God, we need to take note here. For you see, in our text, we see Jesus coming. He sees coming to Christians. He's coming to Christians, but they were lukewarm Christians. They were Christians who had become complacent. They had become comfortable in their Christianity, if I might say it that way. They had lost their zeal. They had, their, their, their faith had, had deteriorated. They had become indifferent, if you will, to the claims of the gospel. They had become lukewarm. And yet Jesus is dealing with them as they were believers, members of the church. Once again, Jesus teaches us here that left on our own in, in left on their own in their in their lukewarm condition, they would not come to him. And therefore he goes to them. He goes to their door. He not only goes to stand there, but we read he knocks on that door. And through his knocking, he announces his presence and he awaits their response earnestly desiring that that door would be open to him. Oh, my dear people of God, how often has this text not been used to bolster the erroneous Arminian view that, that they want us to believe that man can actually save himself? How often have we not heard it said, even, even sometimes in our own circles, that Jesus surely will save us. Christ will surely love us. Jesus will surely come to us if only we would let him. If only we would choose him. If only we would open that door, then Jesus will receive us. And God is then presented as a God who earnestly longs, earnestly desires that men would come to him. But he's also presented as a God who is powerless to save without the consent and cooperation of sinful men and women. And such a God is no God. And equally serious, such is an interpretation, such an interpretation is an unfaithful representation of the actual truth of Scripture. The Bible teaches us everywhere that the very opposite is true, and that truth is also clearly taught us here in our text of this morning. Notice with me that the congregation of Laodicea did not recognize their perilous situation uh, on their own. Jesus declared them to be wretched and naked and blind. They did not see that. They did not see that they were in the danger of perishing. They did not arise and go to him for help. They did not call out to him. Uh, after all, we read, they considered themselves to be rich and getting richer and needing nothing. They had not sought him, nor had they even done anything to bring about the love of Christ, uh, Christ's heart for them. No, Jesus came to them entirely out of his own initiative. Rather, to be more precise, Jesus was motivated by his intense love and faithfulness, which he here demonstrates to the, even to the sinful, disobedient, uh, indifferent children of Laodicea. And we would do the injustice to the text if we failed to notice the sharp contrast between the intense love of the shepherd and the cold indifference the lukewarmness evidenced by his flock. People out here, observe here once again the goodness, the love, and the faithfulness of God shown to his people here in our text. When we begin to drift from him, 
When we begin to put our confidence in our own ingenuity or in our own riches, when we have become convinced that we have no need, then darkness begins to set into our hearts. We become prone to wander far from him. And yet also in such times of spiritual stagnation, Jesus comes to our very house. He grasps the knocker at the door of our heart and he begins to sound a warning. Louder and louder and louder, he knocks at our hearts until we hear him and we rise up out of our complacency to fall at his feet and to jubilantly cry, Rabboni, Master, Teacher, Lord. But notice also with me the method or the means that Jesus uses to accomplish his purpose in that metaphor portrayed here in his knocking or in other words, in other words, how does Jesus knock on our hearts? And the answer is, of course, that in general terms, the primary means that God uses is the preaching of the gospel. That needs to be properly understood. First of all, every time, people of God, hear me well. I never tire of telling you. Every time the call of the gospel is heard, every time the word of God is preached, every time we are confronted with the word of God, it is the calling of Jesus Christ himself. And it demands a response on our part. To simply receive a sermon for information. To simply hear it without applying it to our own heart and, and, and lives is still a response indeed. But it is a response in unbelief. And we need to remember that. However, when we know his word, when we are familiar with God's will for our lives then we're also able to recognize other measures used by God to remind us of his presence and our great need for him. We see him, for instance, in the, in the, in, in, we see his hand in, in, in the work of the elders when they come knocking at your door on a home visit, when they want to speak to you about your lukewarmness. He uses the elders we see him also in other ways. We see his hand in great catastrophes and calamities. We read him in wars and rumors of wars. We see him in economic depression. We see and even feel his hand in global pandemics. And sometimes God interrupts our own health in the strength of our years and he afflicts us with serious illness in order to give us the necessary quiet time to reflect upon our own relationship to him. Some of us have seen him in the affliction or even, even the death of a loved one in order to cause us to remember his almighty sovereignty. At times, God gives us to see the horrible consequence of sin in the lives of others. And in all such things, you can find many more in your own life's experience. But in all such things, if we listen carefully, we can hear the tap, tap, tapping of Christ on the door of our heart. The hand of the Lord continues to knock louder, ever louder, pounding even until it breaks down our sinful resistance and accomplishes his purpose for his glory and for our salvation. And it is through such means, but especially through the preaching of the word of God that Jesus knocks unceasingly until we arise 
and answer his call. So what are we to do in response to his speaking and knocking? How must we answer? The answer is given us here in our text. We read, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Obviously, first of all, we are to hear the voice of the Lord, but more is required. Not only are we to hear and to believe in his word, but also, according to our text, we are to become active, active in our display of our obedience to that word. Originally meaning as it was in the beginning, there was only one voice. There was only one voice. That's why I heard us sing that song this morning. Jesus calls us o'er the tumult. Originally meaning it was as it was in the beginning, there was only one voice to be heard in all of creation. The voice of the Father was the only voice heard in all of his glorious creation, including man as the crowning glory of his creative work. All of, all, of, all, of, all of his glorious creation sang the praises of glory and honor to God. And tragically, after the fall, as a result of the fall, that harmony was broken. The song became distorted, and as a result, not only are there now different voices to be heard, but also an equally tragic. Man has not simply become lukewarm to the voice of the master. He has, in fact, become deaf to it. He cannot even hear it. Remember also in this context that Satan seeks to devour all men. However, we do well to observe that he exerts himself primarily to destroy the child of God. The world already belongs to Satan. He's not interested in the world. He is interested in you. The world already belongs to him. It is the Christian. It is the Christian to whom he directs his special attention. Does not the scripture teach us that the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour? Do we not read also that if God did not shorten the time for the sake of the elect, all of mankind would be consumed by Satan? And in his effort to deceive and to destroy the church of Christ, Satan makes also his voice to be heard. And hear me well. Satan does not come to us with clanging cymbals and loud roar, rolling of drums. No, no, no. It is with craft and cunning. It is with the most deceptive ingenuity that he speaks to do, that he seeks to do God's children harm and injury. It is, it is if I may say it this way, it is he comes to us in the quietness of slippered, slippered feet, as it were. He subtly approaches us in his effort to snatch us out of God's hand. He speaks to us in an effort to deceive and to destroy us. For instance, have you not experienced the voice of Satan in his, in his attempts to, to have you doubt God's promises? Have you not heard him whispering in your own ear, for example, that your sins are far too great for God to possibly forgive them? Has he not on occasion also tried to convince you that the Bible really can't be trusted in all that it says and teaches? Have we not heard him whisper in our own ear that male-female relationships in the home and the family and the church need to be changed because, because the way God had ordained it just isn't feasible anymore in today's culture? You've heard him. You've heard his voice. 
My dear precious people of God gathered with me here in Salem this morning. Satan is able to disguise himself as an angel of light and his voice can sound so convincing. But again, hear the words of our text. When anyone hears my voice, my voice, Jesus calls us or the tumult of all these other voices. When anyone hears my voice, the emphasis here needs to fall on that little phrase, my voice. We need to be able to discern his voice. It is the voice of our master that we must learn to recognize and follow. Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice. Every voice we hear, every thought and inclination of our hearts needs to be tested, scrutinized, carefully examined, against the only touchstone necessary for us to discern. We need to test every voice, every spirit in the light of God's word. For only there can we learn to recognize, only there we'll be able to distinguish, only there in the word of God, only there will we hear the sweet voice of Jesus. But a simple hearing of his voice, a simple listening to his knock, without further response is still wholly insufficient. Again, we go back to our text, he who hears my voice and opens the door. Obviously, a response is demanded on our part. We are to be not only hearers of his word, but also doers of his will. We are to open that door to him. Again, I remind you, that we need to distinguish carefully here. It's been the custom of many well-intentioned yet ill-informed Ill teachers to present this opening of the door to Christ as the, the act of accepting Christ. We're told that if only we would give ourselves to him, if we would only open that door, then and only then can Jesus save us. I mentioned that earlier. However, the Bible wants us to know differently from the context of this passage. Remember again that Jesus is here speaking to the church. He's addressing the regenerate, the born-again Christian. Jesus is not inviting the unbeliever to accept him by opening that door. Jesus is not offering salvation here to the unbeliever. No, Jesus here is not working regeneration in the hearts of the unbeliever. He is calling out to his own. He's calling out to those who already belong to him, but who have failed to persevere in their commitment to him. To those, he's calling out to those who have cooled in their faith, and he calls them to repentance and conversion. My dear precious saints of God, now we have the proper context to understand and to comprehend the profound judgment pronounced by Christ on the church of Laodicea. This church had not apostatized from the truth. She had not been found guilty of foul heresy. She had not followed a Jezebel. She had not been charged with following the Nicolaitan doctrine. No, the damning indictment of Christ to them was far more serious. Their condition was summed up in that one word, lukewarm. Her sin was that she was neither hot nor cold. They were his. He had set his love upon them. He had called them into uh, them his own possession. He had rescued them from darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of light. He had set them apart as his own particular people. 
God had set his mark on their foreheads and they had recognized his divine claims. They had known his infinite love. They had experienced his precious blood. They had been comforted by his almighty spirit. They had once tasted of his sweet and holy service. They had once tasted of his promises and they, and they treated it all with indifference. They demonstrated no burning affection, no earnest devotion, no self-denying, no self-sacrificing zeal. And therefore their condition was especially offensive to God and he threatens to spew them out of his mouth. Oh, how precarious was their position, their condition. But, but, But we would be presenting an incomplete gospel if we failed to see here the patient, long-suffering love demonstrated by Christ to his own. In their indifference, in their own sinful condition, in their own blindness and nakedness, even in their own inability to recognize their perilous condition, Jesus stands. Jesus seeks them out. Jesus seeks them out. He knocks at the door of their hearts and he calls them to open the door. He summons them. He commands them to once again display their zeal. He calls them, people of God, hear me well. He calls them to be on fire for the Lord. Now finally, see also from our text that Jesus promises to what Jesus promises to all who hear his voice. We read, I will come into him and dine with him. Did you catch that? We do not simply hear him saying that he will once again instruct us in the way that he would have us go, although that too is implied, of course. No, a much greater blessing is promised as here we hear Jesus say, I will go into them. Excuse me. The imagery here is that of a home, a home of Christ, a home for Christ. The heart of the Christian who is contrite in contrite spirit returns to Christ, becomes the actual dwelling of the Spirit of Christ. And that's what is meant when we speak of the indwelling of Christ in our hearts. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, comes into our hearts, and it is precisely this relationship which is at the very essence of Christianity. Only when the Spirit of God dwells in our hearts are we able to recognize Christ as the Son of the living God. My dear, precious, precious, precious people of God, once again this morning, we've been blessed to sit at the feet of Christ and to learn from his word. We've been privileged to have his word demonstrate the marvelous relationship between his sovereignty and our own human responsibility. And and contrary to the teaching of some that would have us know that the text of this morning teaches that God only offers but leaves it up to man to exercise his own option to accept or reject. No, we have heard the voice of Jesus speaking to us and we have learned from him. We have learned from God's word this morning that God God, God seeks and saves. We've, we've seen God's faithfulness and hopefully also our own unfaithfulness. 
we've learned that God continues to seek and to find the lost sheep of Israel. It is God that seeks and finds those who have allowed the doors of their hearts to close to him. It is he that knocks on that door through the preaching of the word of God and through various diverse life's experiences. It is also he who lets his voice be heard in the gospel preaching. At the same time, he also lets his mighty hand be seen, sometimes even felt on occasion through a veil of tears. What a tremendous comfort was given us in this understanding of the scriptures, especially for those of us who have loved ones, family members, friends, neighbors, or perhaps children who having once tasted of the goodness of God have since cooled in their love for him. Christ continues to knock. Christ in his long-suffering love continues to seek. We are not absolved of our human responsibility in our calling to pray for them and to confront them with the claims of Christ. However, we may and we must take comfort in the knowledge and the assurance that God will not abandon the work of his hands, knowing that a work by him begun will also by him be fully done. Nevertheless, having listened carefully to God speak this morning, we've also been admonished to respond. We're commanded to discern the voice of Christ. We are to know and we are to make good use of the word of God, especially as it is preached by the church of Christ twice each Lord's day again. Only in his word can he be found. We've heard again this morning the divine injunction to hear that word, to know that word, to love that word, to obey that word. And then with the gracious help of the Holy Spirit, we are to live that word. Christ knocks even today. His voice has resounded in our midst this morning from this very pulpit. He is knocking at the door of all of our hearts. How will we respond Will our hearts remain cool, unreceptive, lukewarm? Or do we say with the men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened the scripture to us? Our text closes with the words, I will come, I will dine with him and he with me. As a congregation, we hope, Lord willing, to celebrate the Lord's Supper next week. We've heard Christ knocking at the door of our hearts in his word this morning. We've heard his command to open that door to him. He has admonished each of us to examine the condition of our own hearts. In this coming week, especially as we prepare to meet with him at his table, to dine with him in a particular way, we are instructed to evaluate our love for him and for one another. Do our hearts, does your heart burn within you as you hear him speak to you? Are we, you and I, are we living in a right relationship with him, with one another, with our husbands, our wives, our children, our fellow members of the congregation? Are we heartily sorry for all of our sin? Let each of us examine our hearts and our lives in this coming week. Is there brokenness or tension between us? Is there unconfessed sin in our hearts? 
whether that be sin of omission or commission, take the opportunity this week to confess your sin and be reconciled to God and to your fellow man. Then also accept with grateful heart his invitation to dine with him at his table next week. To all of those whose hearts are receptive and responsive to the indwelling and the leading of the Holy Spirit of Christ, Jesus has promised, I will dine with them and they with me. That feast, of course, is symbolic, not only of the intimate communion we have with him now, but also it is a promise of a future and an eternal promise. For in Revelation 19, we hear Jesus reiterate the same promise. But there we hear him say to John and to you and to me, blessed are they who have been called to the marriage feast of the Lamb.